Welcome to The View from the Front. My name is Stan, and this is the July 13th edition. Today we're talking about seven big stories involving Ukraine that you have to know about. And I would say of the seven, you probably haven't heard about half of these. We'll also do a segment on bipartisanship, slash America working, slash good news. I'm also going to highlight a U.S. military unit that's doing some dangerous stuff you probably aren't fully aware of. And of course, we'll cover some motivation and wisdom at the end. If you are new to the show, let me say as background that I covered the news for more than 10 years as a journalist. And before that, I served six years in the Marine Corps, spending all six years in the infantry. Each week, I primarily do three things. I work to highlight what our military troops are doing around the world, while also covering hotspots and foreign policy news that could affect our country. I attempt to unite our beautiful land and remind us of how lucky we are to live in America. Our division is our country's greatest threat, and I want to remind us that most Americans are good. Finally, I always share plenty of motivation and wisdom at the end of each episode because I want to help encourage you and lift you up. Life is certainly hard, and each one of us needs all the motivation and encouragement and wisdom that we can possibly get. Thanks again for joining us. I really hope you get something from the show. Before we get to that big story of the seven big things involving Ukraine that you have to know about, let me just say one personal note my wife and stepson are traveling and are not with me and i gotta say i miss them a lot so babe if you hear this i miss you can't wait to see you again and i gotta say if you're in a marriage or relationship where you don't miss your partner when they're not around man work on it do something it's uh i've had it both ways and i gotta say it's a lot better when it's amazing and awesome and those things are things that you can have but you do have to work at them and man i mean that's what we're supposed to have right so if you don't have that work at it all right let's get to our big cover story here's seven big things you need to know that involve ukraine and like i said i think about half of these you probably haven't heard yet The first one involves Sweden joining NATO. Obviously, Erdogan and Turkey had prevented that from happening for some time, but it looks like that's finally happening. And I wanted to share someone who knows more about the situation than myself their opinion on this situation. This comes from Ben Rhodes. He was the former Deputy National Security Advisor of the United States to the Obama administration. And here were his thoughts on it. And before I play this clip, let me just say that You might say, well, this is someone who was under the Obama administration. They're obviously someone from the left. But I will say, almost every comment he's making in this, I could have found national security folks from the conservative side who who are not Trump MAGA movement. But I'm talking traditional conservatives, the side of the house that I originally came from. They would say almost every single word that you're about to hear. So I could have found this quote from either side, but... Just grabbed one, just happened to be from Ben Rhodes. Here are his comments. Yeah, I mean, first of all, one way to measure these things so that they're not in the news cycle, Lawrence, is to keep in mind that this is permanent, right? Finland and Sweden joining NATO is a permanent change to the transatlantic uh, relationship and to American security. And to put this in perspective, Finland doubles the size of the border between NATO countries and Russia. Sweden is a highly capable military, a highly capable navy, a very large power of its own right in terms of uh, Europe, uh, expands the border on the Arctic, expands the border along the Baltic Sea, which is crucial to defending NATO territory in the Baltics. So these are tangible achievements that will last and also send a message that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been already a strategic defeat for them from the perspective of NATO enlargement uh, and greater solidarity within the alliance between the United States and Europe. Let's move from the news about Sweden to the next topic. The second big story that I wanted to cover was almost three weeks ago, on June 24th, the Wagner Group under Prigozhin 
left the front and began the kind of historic and what appeared to be major move toward Moscow that had all of us on the edge of our seats for all of about 24 hours. And then he blinked and we're where we are now. So what has happened in the three weeks since then? I wanted to share some information from the United Kingdom's defense intelligence that they release on an almost daily basis. I will just share what their intelligence has picked up. Now, obviously, in the beginning, they're saying the intelligence for the United Kingdom is saying that Russian, the Russian government was initially surprised by the mutiny and not prepared during the actual attack itself. Russian television maintained its usual schedule, even though a lot of the Russian people began to panic because of the information getting out on Telegram and other channels. After the insurrection was diffused, Russian state outlets sought to, quote, correct claims that security forces had been passive and allowed Wagner and Prigozhin to move toward Moscow, mostly unopposed. Russian media began to promote the idea that instead of that actually having happened, that President Vladimir Putin had triumphed by thwarting the insurrection while avoiding too much bloodshed, and that he had sought to unite the country behind the president. And since that time, the state media has tried to downplay the significance of Prigozhin and the mutiny, and they've also began tarnishing his character. You might have seen on social media some of the outfits and disguises. There were photos released to totally try to embarrass him. If you haven't seen those, they're pretty embarrassing. Also, many of the Telegram channels that Wagner was operating, they've mostly gone silent. The UK intelligence believes that was because of Russian state intervention. So they've shut down a lot of his, I don't want to say media empire, but it was almost becoming a underground media empire as his stature grew among the Russian people. All of those, or most of those channels, have been shut down. And then finally, Putin has also been undertaking unusually prominent public engagements, trying to project strength, although some analysts believe that he is using body doubles to show up in some of these regions. But he's definitely trying to reestablish the aura or the sense of strength that he wants to portray, while also increasingly making Prigozhin weak and taking away the channels that he had for media and as so many analysts have said, at some point, most people think something's going to happen to Prigozhin. He's going to have an accident or something like that. So we'll keep an eye on that. But before that can happen, you can't take out a guy who's a mythical figure to the Russian people. You have to start weakening the way he looks. You have to put out photos of gold bars and cash that make him look like a greedy tyrant. You have to put out silly photos of him dressed as an old man, or you got to do these kinds of things to make someone, you got to attack their character before you take them down. So that's what looks like has happened so far. We will stay tuned to what awaits his fate. So let's move to the third big story. And this one is one that I try to just shoot straight with you guys, and we've talked about some of the challenges of the Ukrainian offensive, and actually I'll talk just a bit more about the offensive a little bit later in this segment. But I did want to say that I was listening to Morning Joe, which is of course a show hosted by former Republican Congressman Joe Scarborough, and in it he talked about some of the things he was hearing from administration officials off the record and on background, and they are talking that the U.S. is privately privately telling Ukraine that it should seek a diplomatic end to the fighting, that there will be no major wins or victories. And so former Congressman Joe Scarborough talks about that a bit. And then in this segment I'm about to share, Susan Page, who's the USA Today Washington Bureau Chief, been doing reporting for probably 20-plus years or more, has incredible sources. She elaborates on that, and I want to share that, just a short segment of that, so that you can hear it. Because like I said, I always want to share the full picture. I still remain optimistic about the counteroffensive. I have been for a long time, but 
I want to share what's actually being said by some folks who are hearing from some defense and intelligence officials in Washington, D.C. And so here's what they're saying. The United States continues to say privately to Ukraine that there will ultimately have to be a diplomatic solution to this war, diplomatic resolution, probably not a military one. And that's a hard uh, that's a that's a hard message in some ways for Ukraine. But it is probably the realistic one as we look ahead to what's going to happen with this war. So there you go. Definitely wanted to share that. Like I said, I always want to shoot straight with you guys with what I'm hearing even if it's not necessarily something that I want to hear or maybe something you want to hear. Let's move now to the fourth big thing that I really think you guys need to know about, and that is that the U.S. has approved sending cluster munitions to Ukraine. That's something that has some controversy, and I'm going to get into that in just a second. But first, let's just set it up as a little bit of background. Uh, Let me just share something that a reporter said about this on NPR. This reporter actually covered Desert Shield. Desert Storm has literally walked among the remnant mines that are sometimes left from unexploded ordnance. So the reporter was literally talking about this. The reporter's been covering cluster munitions for almost 30 years now and is definitely as much of an expert as one is going to find. Let me just share just a short piece from that clip. These comments come from Greg Meyer, and he is a national security correspondent with NPR. So why is this so important to Ukraine, and and why now? Yeah, the main reason this seems to be happening now is Ukraine is pressing this major offensive, and it's running low on artillery shells. Ukraine is trying to break through Russian lines in the east and the south, where the Russian troops are deeply entrenched, and the cluster munitions could be a very valuable weapon, because you could hit a larger patch of territory with just one of these weapons compared to a conventional artillery shell. The U.S. has a large supply of them on the shelf, so it can presumably give them to Ukraine pretty quickly. Of course, if by chance you're not aware of what cluster munitions are, they're typically fired, at least in this case in Ukraine, they'll be fired from an artillery shell. They go through the air, they spin, and then they, before they hit the ground, they open up and release almost a hundred, but definitely dozens of these little bomblets. And then the idea is that They spread over a large area, and they explode. The one most used for the 155mm artillery shell carries 88 submunitions, or there are 76 in a longer-range version called the M864. It's hard to find the exact width on how wide the projectiles will rain, but let me just share what I saw in one article in Vietnam they were found to be eight times more effective in producing casualties as just standard high explosive because the range is so wide that it would take multiple shells from a 155 to do the same level of shrapnel and damage. And since Vietnam, they've been improved a bit, but in peacetime testing against vehicles, the U.S. has found that cluster munitions are 60 times as effective. So that's 6-0, 60 times more effective. The only time they're not as effective is against buildings and sometimes hardened targets, but against infantry in the open, against light vehicles, against enemy artillery, these things are absolutely deadly. And they're so deadly, in fact, and because they do leave behind the submunitions that don't explode, that more than 100 countries have signed a treaty saying they will not use them. So let's address some of the criticism about the cluster munitions just real quickly, and then we'll move on to those final points. First of all, the Russians have been using and are continuing to use these shells. They're not even just using them against Ukrainian troops and against Ukrainian vehicles. They've been firing them into cities indiscriminately. I've got a In the episode notes, I will show you an image of a massive stack. There are two Ukrainian policemen, and there is a massive, I guess stack isn't even the right word, it's a massive pile the size of a house of the leftover parts that were fired into Kharkiv. That is a massive city with hundreds of thousands of people. These were fired indiscriminately by the Russians as civilians. It is just one of the many war crimes that have been committed, many of which I've talked about for months now. But let's not act like 
that this is some horrible thing the Ukrainians are doing. They are going to use them against enemy troops, and they are going to be used inside Ukraine. Additionally, here are some of the things that Ukraine has said. Their defense minister says this, uh, Reznikov. He had said that they would follow these rules if they were allowed to get these weapons from the U.S. And, of course, the U.S. has agreed to do it. Okay, so they will only be used in Ukrainian territory where Russian troops are. They will not be fired into Russian territory. So, again, we're tying the arms of the Ukrainians behind their back. But that was the first thing. They won't be used in urban areas, as the Russians have, but they will only be used where Russian troops are concentrated to break through their defensive lines. They will strictly account for the use. So when they fire them, they're going to keep up with where they're fired, and therefore, when it's done, and that's the next point, where the munitions were used, that will be a priority for demining once the war is over. So they're going to keep up with where they're used, have a strict accounting of them, and then they'll go and get in the less than 2% or whatever percent of duds that remain that didn't blow up, that could could affect kids or civilians or livestock. They're going to go in and they're going to demine those. So again, this is hardly how the Russians have been using them. And let's not forget, by the way, that the Russians have mined so many parts of Ukraine. It's difficult to even wrap your arms around. Now, clearly, you can tell I support sending these cluster munitions there. And it's because, like I said... Russia is already using them. It's like we have Russia over here stabbing you with a knife, and then these people in the crowd around you who are supposed to be your friends are saying, well, we don't want you to use a knife. They're using a knife. We don't, we don't want you to do that. Kick them. Move. Do punches. Do eye strikes. Do, use, a, use a small club. We, we don't want to hurt them too bad. No knives fight. No knife fighting back. And so... It's just very frustrating, but the Ukrainian government has asked for them. They're getting just unbelievable casualties from having them inflicted on Ukrainian civilians and Ukrainian troops. So the Ukrainians say they need them. It's Ukrainian land, and if they're willing to take the risk of some of those not exploding and demining them afterwards, I say we give them to them. I wanted to share one final thing to help convince me of all of this, although my mind was already convinced, but this was just icing on the cake. I wanted to quote someone on Mastodon who goes by the handle uh, F100. And this is such a brilliant point. F100, and this is an analyst who's been covering the war for a while, but makes the point that Ukraine says, with cluster bombs, there will be a shorter war, fewer Russian mines, Fewer civilian dead. Without cluster bombs, there will be a longer war. There will be more Russian mines strewn throughout the countryside, and there will be more dead civilians. So, it's just, to me, it's it's not even... This isn't even anything up for debate. Okay, I think we have thoroughly covered cluster munitions. Let's move to the fifth big story that I think you need to know about that you may have missed. And let's talk about what is now being called a new offensive strategy for Ukraine or a new offensive strategy for their counteroffensive. And I haven't seen this get a whole lot of ink out there. I know there's been a lot of stuff about the cluster munitions and a lot of stuff about Sweden. have seen very few people talk about this. Let's talk about it for just a moment. This news broke about a week ago, and had I not seen it, from just a couple of analysts on social media, and it wasn't even widely shared, then I wouldn't even have known about it. I don't know that any major mainstream media really covered this, and if you were to Google it, it's kind of hard to find. But the Secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, Oleski Danilov, said on July 4th that Ukraine is switching strategies for its counteroffensive. And let me just read just a couple of sentences. And this was literally just put on Twitter. There was no major, like I said, no major announcement, very little coverage of it. Let me just read what Danilov said. Quote, at this stage of active hostilities, Ukraine's defense forces are fulfilling the number one task, the maximum destruction of manpower, equipment, fuel depots, 
military vehicles, command posts, artillery and air defense forces of the Russian army, he said on Twitter. He added, the last few days have been particularly fruitful. Now the war of destruction is equal to the war of kilometers. More destroyed means more liberated. The more effective the former, the more the latter. We are acting calmly, wisely, step by step. Now, these comments align with what President Zelensky had said, as well as the head of their defense forces, about that this isn't a game that is being paid for every meter by, you know, literally gallons of blood. And so, it does appear that perhaps there's a bit of a shift, and I will say, if you are following any of the accounts that show some of the video footage of the daily strikes from artillery, from the multiple launch rocket systems, etc., the amount of stuff that Ukraine has been destroying in, in just the past week or two, it just it seems like they are better and better targets, more costly targets, counter-battery radar Various, um, just very expensive weapon systems are being targeted better and better. So I think there's probably certainly some wisdom to what Ukraine is saying, to what he's saying. I mentioned literally, I believe it was last week, that Ukraine, I don't think Ukraine feels the pressure to have to have a massively successful counteroffensive as they felt like they had to do even a month or two ago. I feel like that pressure has been taken off of them, and so they are just taking their time and using precision munitions to increasingly target literally the things that he mentioned, the depots, the ammunition, etc. Some of the bridges, they're just going to continue to try to break the morale and the combat power of the Russians, because as we've talked about the mines that the Russians are using in their heavy artillery, which they still have a huge advantage in. These are just very formidable obstacles, especially when combined with the fact that Ukraine does not have air superiority. Let's move to the sixth big story you need to know about. Those who have been keeping up with this war for a while now probably remember the Azov Brigade and the heavy heavy fighting that had happened in Mariupol and how they held out for a three-month siege. It was just an unbelievable battle that I think people will talk about even a hundred years from now. Since the last podcast, a big move was made by Turkey, and Turkey released some of the commanders of the Azov Brigade. Now, after Russia captured those brigade commanders back in the spring of 2022, they were transferred to Turkey. This was part of a prisoner swap, and Zelensky at the time said that they would stay there until the end of the war, but I think partly because Putin has shown so much weakness. Erdogan, who, you know, of course, sometimes is pro-NATO, pro-West, sometimes pro-Russia, He's kind of always, he's kind of, he just likes to be seen as his own strong man. But I guess Putin showed such weakness, or perhaps there was some uh, pressure to Turkey, or perhaps Turkey wanted to win some goodwill before this NATO summit. But for whatever the reason, Erdogan, without informing Russia, released these Azov commanders, these leaders, and they have been returned to Ukraine. So again, to summarize, five of these commanders from Ukraine's Azov Brigade were released. The most crazy thing is, is they say that they actually plan to return to the front to fight. So I'm not sure if they're just saying that for propaganda or if that's absolutely the truth. But Russia is not happy because they were not asked about this beforehand and they believe it violates the agreement in which these prisoners were transferred to Turkey. Now let's get to that seventh, that final story that I feel like you guys need to hear. And this one's some good news. The Washington Post had a story that lays out that the Republican Party's march away from supporting Ukraine and away from being almost pro-Russia pro-Putin that was largely led by, obviously, Fox News and some of their guests, 
especially Tucker Carlson has really pushed that. Trump has really pushed that. But for the first time, some of the polling has shown that the shift that was, if you remember, at one point by January of uh, this year, people were saying that we were supporting Ukraine too much, that Congress should slow it down or stop funding the war, that Ukraine should seek peace, even though they were the ones that were invaded, even though they're the ones who have had a large part of their land taken. I think the latest number is about 18%, although they're slowly but surely continually to take that back. That has began begun to shift, and it is now getting... It's at least halted, and it's now starting to almost head back to the 50% point where more and more Republicans are supporting the measures of military aid and financial aid to Ukraine to help it stand up against the Russian war of aggression against it. That is absolutely good news, and I think as, besides the fact that Tucker Carlson's been deplatformed, I think that's been part of it, but I think if you look at the Republican primary, there have been increasingly larger numbers of those presidential candidates who have been speaking out in support of Ukraine. In fact, Mike Pence even visited Ukraine recently. So I think some of that messaging is starting to get through, which is great news for Ukraine. I think that's great news, honestly, even for America. I do believe that America is supposed to not only be the beacon of light and the city on the hill, but I believe we're also supposed to be the arsenal of democracy that FDR talked about before World War II. I think we can do things to help countries that are being attacked by larger, tyrannical countries. So definitely good news happening there, and I wanted to share that for sure. Let's move from all that foreign policy stuff. As you guys know, every week I like to do a segment on bipartisanship or just some kind of evidence of America working or some kind of good news. And this week, I got a good one for you. This involves a story I'm confident almost no one saw. It involves, in fact, just a state rep from Massachusetts. But state rep Mike Connolly, who's a Democrat out of Cambridge, has basically had a falling out with the Democratic Socialist of America. Now, they're a super progressive group, and they were moving to literally expel him after they had initially supported his run and helped him get elected. But here's the crazy thing. Connolly decides to leave the Democratic Socialist of America, and he released this statement. And I just want you to hear this. So... And as I'm about to read this, let me just say, you guys know I'm a proud moderate. And I think whether it's progressives on the far left or Republicans, you know, MAGA Republicans on the super far right, I just think that even if you're ethically or morally or even by numbers and data, even if you are right about something, in our political system, you must compromise. And I just, I get frustrated with people who or they'll just draw a line in the sand and they just don't want to, I guess, not cooperate, but they just don't want to compromise. They don't want to do anything. They would rather say, if it ain't all or nothing, then I want nothing. And to me, it just makes no sense. It doesn't it doesn't follow the pragmatism that is necessary in a, in a country such as ours to operate effectively. I almost said democracy, but every time I do that, someone emails me and says we're a we're a republic or we're a constitutional republic. I mean, duh, I think I know what we are. But at any rate, we have to work together. But I want to read this comment from State Rep. Connolly. Quote, It really became clear that the fundamental charge was that I was building partnerships and working with other state leaders and activists to deliver results for our communities. I don't think building broad coalitions in support of our goals is an abandonment of our values. I think it's actually necessary for delivering for people in need. And then it goes into some of the details that none of us really know because we don't live in that state and these aren't things that affect us. But at any rate, 
hats off to state rep Mike Connolly. And, you know, I don't care if it's a far right Republican. I've always said I just kind of naturally dislike extremists because I just don't like people who are just absolutely firm on something, at least when it comes to governing. Now, I obviously have religious principles that I'm super firm on, but when it comes to governing, you might only get 80% of what you want. You might only get 20% of what you want, but if it was 20% of something that would help people or that would move a cause, why would you not take the 20%? I've never understood that. And so hats off to State Rep Mike Connolly. I hate that you're... Supporters from the Democratic Socialists of America kicked you out, but based on what he posted on Twitter and the huge amount of support that he stated he's getting, I bet a lot of people in his district are probably as sick of that far-left group as he is. It's just, uh, you know, we see it a lot with the Trump movement as well, where even people such as Marjorie Taylor Greene is now being attacked by people who are further to the right of her such as Lauren Boebert. It's it's almost humorous to watch some of this, but this is just how government works. It, we always have people who are super idealistic go into government service, and when they get there, they realize that, unfortunately, you must have compromise. And one of the big problems in America right now is, the, besides the gerrymandered districts, is that people who run on platforms that are, you know, just super ideological. They're the ones that raise the most money. They're the ones who eat most easily make social media news. And so they have a lot of power. And ultimately, we have to get back to where government becomes a little bit more boring and where both sides work together. This shouldn't be controversial at all. But for many legislators, whether they're on the left or the right, their biggest threat is from a primary opponent. So, We've kind of forced both sides to be very ideological on how they vote, and that has just unfortunately ground down and and just halted much of the progress that we could be seeing across the country in state legislators and in Congress because, as I said, both sides have just kind of, they got to be in lockstep with the party. So, at any rate, hats off to uh, State Rep. Matt Connolly. I hope it's the first of many many on both left and right on the far extremes pushing closer toward the middle come into the water baby it's it's nice and warm every week i like to highlight some unit from one of the branches of our armed forces last week We discussed the USS McFall, which helped prevent the Iranian Navy and its proxies from seizing two oil tankers in the Middle East, which would have been a massive, major international incident. I talked about that last week, so if you missed that, make sure you go back and listen to that. This week, we are going to discuss the forces that are serving inside U.S. Central Command in roughly that same area. Based on open source reporting, there are approximately 900 Americans that are working in or around the area of Syria. They are battling both ISIS members that are continuing to try to reconstitute themselves as a fighting force. And they are also dealing with Iranian-backed militant groups and even Russian forces in the area that are doing very aggressive actions. You would think that Russia has enough on its plate in Ukraine, but no, it has to do aggressive things to try to get U.S. forces to overreact or retaliate in a way that would bring dishonor and shame on U.S. forces and on U.S. prestige. We currently have in the area, besides the 900 troops that I mentioned earlier, some A-10 Warthogs, those are obviously ground attack aircraft, We also have F-15 Strike Eagles and F-16 Fighting Falcons. Those are obviously pretty strong air-to-air combat. And from time to time, the U.S. deploys F-22 Raptors into the area. Those are obviously fifth-generation air-to-air fighters as a way to further attack or further deter Iranian attacks on U.S. partners. As a refresher, back in March, Iranian-backed militants used drones to wound five Americans and kill one 
American contractor. There were U.S. airstrikes after that. Now, in addition to that activity, let me just give you a summary of operations from May and June in Syria against ISIS-backed militants. This information comes from CENTCOM. In the month of May, the U.S. forces ran a total of 38 operations, which led to 31 ISIS operatives being detained and 8 killed. The numbers from June were quite similar. There were 37 operations against ISIS. There were 13 ISIS operatives killed, 21 detained. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize these are very dangerous missions, and these are the kinds of missions you never hear about but are happening on an almost every other day or twice a week basis, a little bit stronger than that as far as the frequency of activity. You would think dealing with ISIS and dealing with these Iranian-backed militias would be enough, but no, they actually have more on their plate, which I partly teased in the beginning of this segment. Let's talk about what the Russians are doing and what they are doing to try to provoke some type of incident. The first one comes from July 5th. I will read from the report that CENTCOM filed. Earlier today at approximately 10.40 a.m., Russian military aircraft engaged in unsafe and unprofessional behavior while interacting with U.S. aircraft in Syria. While three MQ-9 drones, those are the Reapers, were conducting a mission against ISIS targets, three Russian fighter jets began harassing the drones. Against established norms and protocols, the Russian jets dropped multiple parachute flares in front of the drones, forcing our aircraft to conduct evasive maneuvers. Additionally, one Russian pilot positioned their aircraft in front of an MQ-9 drone and engaged afterburner, thereby reducing the operator's ability to safely operate the aircraft. And then it goes on to say that this represent, represents another example of unprofessional and safe actions by Russian air forces operating in Syria, which threatened the safety of both U.S. and Russian forces. Of course, this was not a one-time incident. The very next day, the same thing happened. All of this on its own would be bad enough, but it takes very little research to see that back in March, there were numerous news stories about how Russia was literally flying over a U.S. garrison in Syria. You can find plenty of news sources on this. The one I'm looking at is from NBC News, and in that month of March 22nd, by the 22nd of March, obviously that's 22 days, the Russians had already violated that airspace and flown over troops 25 times. So that was a vast increase from zero times in February and 14 times in January. One quote that got widely spread from a general in the U.S. Air Force, this general, general's name is Lieutenant General Alexis Grinkwich. He is the commander of U.S. Air Force's Central Command. He said on June 21st, roughly a month ago, that he believes Russian fighter pilots are behaving more aggressively over Syria and suggested it might be, quote, a way to compensate for the fact that they have had to move capability and capacity out of Syria in order to support the war in Ukraine. Regardless of why they're doing it, I would just make two points. One, it would be probably in Putin's interest to do some type of provocative incident to distract from the fact that the war in Ukraine is not going well and that he had a near mutiny from the Wagner group just a few weeks ago. So that's kind of a scary thing. The second thing I would say is that these forces are just in a very difficult and trying situation. I've been in a situation back in 97 in Albania where you have rules of engagement and sometimes you take fire and you're trying to not fire back. It's just a very stressful situation for our service members to be in. So I wanted to highlight what's happening over there. It's not gotten a lot of news. It only gets news when Russia does something provocative. So it's almost like we are feeding the beast because Russia knows it constantly has to up the ante in order to get Western attention, which will then spread to the Russian people and make Putin appear to be this very strong and courageous leader when it's obviously not that situation in reality. Regardless, keep all these men and women in your thoughts and prayers because they are doing very dangerous work.
Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to and would like to help support the show, you can do so by signing up as a monthly paying subscriber. For $5 per month, you can help us sustain, grow, and improve the show. As you can probably tell, I truly do believe in trying to highlight what our military troops are doing around the world, unite our country, and remind us of how lucky we are to live in America, and share plenty of motivation and wisdom at the end of each episode, because I want to help encourage you and lift you up. Long term, being able to quit my day job would be a dream come true. It's honestly what I feel compelled to do. And frankly, being able to do this full-time would provide more time to cover news, unite the country, and focus harder on motivating others. These are all things I feel drawn to do. In that same line of thinking, I feel compelled to write fast-moving action stories about military service and police work. And while on the one hand you could simply say these are action thrillers meant simply for enjoyment, I think these books serve a deeper purpose as well as I think they help attract talented people to both the military and law enforcement. Obviously, these are two crucial needs for our country. But you don't have to sign up as a paying subscriber. I already have an awesome group of folks who are throwing a few dollars into the pot each month to keep the show going. And I thank God for each of these people. If it's meant for me to return to being a full-time author who also does the weekly podcast, then my dreams will come true. But on the other hand, if it is meant for me to continue working a day job and doing this on the side, then I will know that it is God's will, and I will be grateful for two things. For the financial stability my day job provides me, and I will also be grateful for the opportunity to reach hundreds of people each week as I try to help influence our amazing country's direction. If you would like to sign up to support the show, you can do that through my Substack page. You can find that at stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that is stanrmitchell.substack.com, or you can find it in the episode notes. Thanks so much, guys. I appreciate each and every one of you and how much you're doing to support just a little guy from East Tennessee. We're going to begin the motivation and wisdom section with a little pep talk. Because someone out there needs to hear this. I know someone out there needs to hear this. Listen, life is passing you by. You only get one shot at life and you're letting it slip through your fingers day by day. Life has beaten you down, kicked you in the face, ignored you, punished you, rained on you, assailed you with illnesses and injuries, burden you with debts and levels of despair that I know are breaking your spirit. But you have to get up. Do you hear me? You have to get up. You're going to get up, and you're going to get up now, and you're going to start fighting back. Do not let despair win. Get up and take a step forward to confront these things facing you right now. Do it now. And let the following items that I'm going to share lift your spirit and take you to a higher level. You can do this. You're meant to do this. And you have to do this. For yourself, for your family, for your creator. And with all of that being said, I truly hope these help pick up your spirits, that they help revive your hopes, and that they help make you a better person. I hope that pep talk helped motivate you and wake you up. I once read, if you don't think you're powerful, think of your most important relationship of that person who's depending on you. Maybe it's a son or daughter. Maybe it's a parent you're caring for. Maybe it's your spouse. If you don't think you're important, if you think you don't matter, imagine if you suddenly went away. Who would care for that person? Who would check on them, love them, care for them, help them? We are all way more powerful and important than we think. And the work we do, even that work we forget about and sometimes complain about, it's important. You can have an impact. You are having an impact. And now that you're paying attention, let's share a few more items to help feed you and make you stronger. Here is the first one. When you focus on the good, the good gets better. Again, that's when you focus on the good, the good gets better. Next one. Stay patient and trust your journey. Again, stay patient and trust your journey. Next one. All endings are also beginnings. We just don't know it at the time. Again, that is, all endings are also beginnings. We just don't know it at the time. 
That's a quote from Mitch Album, which some of you may have heard of. He's written some great books, including Tuesdays with Maury. Again, I'll read that one more time. All endings are also beginnings. We just don't know it at the time. Next one. Don't talk, just act. Don't promise, just prove. Again, don't talk, just act. Don't promise, just prove. Next one. Trust your intuition. It never lies. Again, trust your intuition. It never lies. Next one. Life doesn't always go according to plan. Sometimes heading in a new direction can be scary until you realize you're headed toward a new and exciting destination. Again, that one is life doesn't always go according to plan. Sometimes heading in a new direction can be scary until you realize you're headed toward a new and exciting destination. All right, here's the next one. I really like this one. Have this mindset. I am smart and capable. Anything I don't know, I can learn. That's a good one, isn't it? Again, have this mindset. I am smart and capable. Anything I don't know, I can learn. And that is definitely true in today's world between YouTube, TikTok, just Google. You literally can become an expert on many, 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 many subjects just by hours and hours and hours of studying whatever it is you care about or whatever it is that you want to learn. You can really become good at something in many fields just through hard work on your own. So again, that one was have the mindset, I am smart and capable. Anything I don't know, I can learn. Next one. Hard work puts you where good luck can find you. That's a great one, isn't it? Hard work puts you where good luck can find you. Next one. Better to be tired than to be broke. Again, better to be tired than to be broke. We can all get past a little few nights of not enough sleep, right? It is not fun being broke. I've been broke. I have lived in someone's basement unable to pay rent after a uh, pretty big personal setback at one point in my life. So I can tell you it is not fun being totally broke. Better to be tired than to be broke. Next one. Always remember, fall asleep with a dream and wake up with a purpose. Again, always remember, fall asleep with a dream and wake up with a purpose. Let's knock out three of them from the Bible. The first one's from Romans 12, verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's a good one, isn't it? The next one's from uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. And then the last one is from Psalms chapter 105, verse 4. Look to the Lord and His strength. Seek His face always. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a great one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10 plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. 
and I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. Finally, make sure you check out my books if you haven't yet. I've written 12 of them. I have somehow been fortunate and lucky enough to have sold 70,000 copies And these are all independently published, so that's really quite a feat, honestly. I absolutely have to give credit to God and to my awesome supporters for sharing word of mouth in order to pull off selling that many books. Although I do believe that God gave me a gift with an ability to tell a story, keep it short, and keep the pace moving. Obviously, you can't really be an author without first being a reader, and I absolutely hate slow-moving plots. You can ask any of my friends. And so I think one of the things that sets me apart a bit is just how fast the writing is. Some reviewers have called it cinematic, but I know in today's society, it's easy for people to get distracted. So I don't put a ton of description in. I try to keep it moving fast and I can have really short chapters. So that is the unpolished, honest sales pitch on my books. You can find all 12 of them on Amazon by searching for my full name, Stan R. Mitchell. Again, Stan R. Mitchell. There are several Stan Mitchells, so if you don't include the R, it can be a little hard to find. Although, I've got links everywhere for my books, so if you want to check them out, definitely do so. And with that, we will wrap it up. I really hope you guys join me next week. If you have some feedback on the show, drop a comment. I try to keep an eye on comments. I'm not some kind of big shot, so I usually at least like them and or reply. You can also reach out to me by email if you have any tips, complaints, compliments, questions. You can reach me at authorstanrmitchell at yahoo.com. Once again, that's authorstanrmitchell at yahoo.com. And believe it or not, guys, I'm one of those weirdos that actually answers my emails. Almost always when someone emails me, they are stunned to get a reply, usually relatively quickly within a day. So I've had everything from, I don't understand why this is happening. Can you explain this bit of news? Or you didn't put a link to this. What's your source for that? Or, hey, what do you think is going to happen over here? Or even, could you explain this next week? I try to answer every email. So again, don't be scared. Reach out. And with all of that out of the way, I am out. See you guys next week.